Joel 2, verse 27, you shall know that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. In Joel chapter 1 and 2, God brings devastation on his people in the form of a plague of devouring locusts and a destroying army. Why would God do that to his own people? So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. At the end of Joel chapter 2, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Why would God do that? So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. In Joel chapter 3, God pours his judgment on the nations and his blessings on his people. Why? So that you shall know that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. Do you think that just perhaps God is trying to get their attention? And do you see devastation in your own life? And do you think that just perhaps God might be trying to get your attention? He wants to be at the center of your affections. And his aim is to remove all other alliances and to destroy all false gods that might get in the way of his love relationship with you. Turn in your Bibles to Joel chapter 1. And today we begin a three-week series through the book of Joel. I'm going to be doing uh, chapter 1 and I'll do an overview of Joel. Next week, Kellen will take chapter two, and then the following week, Kelly, Lord willing, he'll be well and back with us, he'll do chapter three. Now, I've entitled this sermon, God Fights for His People's Affections. You could even say, God fights his people for their affections, and that would fit Joel very well. Our God is obsessed with having first place in our lives. I want to give you the structure of the sermon so that you know where I'm going. So first, I'm going to give you a short overview of Joel, just to give you the basic idea. Then I'm going to teach verse by verse through Joel chapter 1. And at the end, I'll give you a more detailed overview. So first, our short overview, Joel 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel the son of Pethuel. And so begins the book of Joel. We know basically nothing about the prophet Joel, but that's okay because Joel is not about Joel. The book of Joel is not about the author. This is not the memoirs of Joel. This book is about God. As verse one states, this book is the word of the Lord. Joel's name means the Lord is God. And that's what the book is about. He is God, and he desires to sit on the throne of your life. He doesn't want to be the backseat driver. He wants the wheel. He doesn't want to be one of your hobbies or something you do on Sunday. He wants your affections set on him. He wants your allegiance, your worship, your love. He wants first place. Now, with a name like that, the Lord is God, we would presume that Joel had godly parents. His father is Pethuel. 
This name is found nowhere else in the Bible. Pethuel means mouth of God or persuasion of God. And it makes you father may have also been a prophet. Joel 2 is acting as the mouthpiece of God, seeking to persuade God's people to leave their lesser affections behind. And that is my task this morning, and I pray that it would be a Holy Spirit-empowered task. So this book has three main sections. Number one, God against his people. That takes up chapter one and most of chapter two, so the first half of the book. In this section, we see the devouring locusts, the destroying army, and then God calling his people to repentance. The second section, God pours out his spirit on all flesh. Just five verses. These are the five verses that Peter quotes at Pentecost. Five verses at the heart of this book, five verses that make all the difference. And Kellen will be addressing those next week. Section three, God judges the nations and blesses his people. And that's in chapter three. And in that section, God gathers everyone together at the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and he renders a verdict. So Joel begins with God against his people. And it ends with God very much for his people. And we will learn that even when it seemed that God was against them, he was actually working for their good. So that's your mini introduction. And now we're going to jump into chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. So he speaks to two groups, the elders and the inhabitants. Now, Joel was probably written between the 9th and the 4th centuries BC. So we're in Old Testament time, either during the divided kingdom or after Israel was taken down by Assyria and Babylon. And it's interesting because Joel does not mention a king. And many commentators argue that means that this book was likely written during a time when Israel had no king, possibly from around 600 to 400 BC, after Assyria had destroyed the northern kingdom and after Babylon had destroyed or taken into captivity the southern kingdom. However, in the book of Joel, there's no mention of Assyria or Babylon, which would have been fine if Joel hadn't mentioned any other nations. But he does mention other nations. Joel mentions Sidon, Tyre, and Philistia in chapter 3, verse 4. But he doesn't mention Assyria and Babylon. This is a very strange omission if the book of Joel was written after Assyria and Babylon had destroyed Israel. In Joel chapter 3, verse 2, Joel mentions God's people being scattered, which maybe that's because Assyria and Babylon had already scattered Israel, or maybe it's speaking prophetically of a future event of that time when God would use Assyria and Babylon to judge Israel and scatter them around the world. But it seems to me that Joel would have mentioned these two nations by name if he had lived after those attacks. 
by Assyria and Babylon. So I would favor an earlier date for the book of Joel. Some conservative commentators think Joel was written earlier, around the 9th century BC. And one commentator had a theory that I liked. It's interesting. He thinks that Joel was written during the reign of the child king Joash. Remember, Joash was the rightful king and heir to the throne as a baby. But he didn't begin ruling until he was of age, the ripe old age of seven. Now, that is a gross oversimplification of Joash's rise to power. But mainly, you need to know that Joash's reign created a strange time in the history of Israel where there was no king. And that would explain why Joel addresses the elders and the priests, but he doesn't address any king. And it would explain why he doesn't mention Assyria and Babylon, because they haven't happened yet. So first, Joel calls on the elders, the leadership, because as the leadership goes, so goes the nation. As the leadership goes, so goes the church, the family, etc. Godly, wise leadership is incredibly important. But Joel is not just talking to the leaders. He is also speaking to the common man, to the rest of us to the inhabitants of the land, or as the herald says in the Knight's Tale, the movie, to everyone else not sitting on a cushion. So Joel speaks to both groups and he says, this is unique. This is a big deal. Verse two, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? This is not the same old same old. Your grandpa and grandma never experienced this. You must never forget. Joel is saying, you Israel must never forget. And I'm not just speaking to this generation. Verse 3, tell your children of it. Let the next generation know. And let your children tell their children. And their children to another generation. Joel says we are called to live in such a way and to instruct our children in such a way as to pass these truths down to our great, great grandchildren. So yes, teach your kids how to parent, but also teach them how to grandparent so they can pass biblical truth down to your grandchildren in such a powerful and convincing way that this message will keep transferring from generation to generation. No, that is why you are hearing the gospel today. Because godly men and women have passed the gospel from generation to generation until it arrived at your heart. Young ladies, before you marry a man... Make sure he is the kind of man who will help you pass the gospel down to your great, great grandchildren. Deuteronomy 11 verse 19, Moses tells us how to do this. He says, you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house. Is it natural for you to talk about the things of God at the dinner table, 
or in the car on the way somewhere. You shall talk about them. And when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Now, what is this message that is so important to Joel and so important to God that it needs to get to our great-great-grandchildren? It is this. The sovereign God brings destruction on his people. The sovereign God brings destruction on his people. So a little side note. Don't just teach your kids the happy stories in the Bible. They need to hear the warnings and the tragedies as well. And guess what? Today we have got ourselves a tragedy. We have got ourselves a total train wreck. A train wreck in the form of a massive swarm of locusts. Verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Little biology lesson here, but one commentator said this may refer to the different stages in the life cycle or the development of this insect. Now, biblical scholars are, are torn or split on how to interpret this text. Some think Joel here is referring to an actual plague of locusts that happened in his own days. Lots of bugs. Others think that this is a metaphor used to describe an army that God is using to judge Israel. The land is being destroyed. The fruit and the vegetables and all the plant life is being eaten by this massive swarm of locusts. If you remember, in Exodus chapter 10, the eighth plague in Egypt was locusts. But that plague was against Egypt, not against God's people, not against Israel. During Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh, God sent a plague of locusts that covered the land. So much so that you could not see the dirt. Every step you took, you felt the crunching of locusts under your feet. These locusts ate all the plants that were left after the plague of hail, and they destroyed all the trees. Now, locusts are amazing little creatures. They can eat their body weight every day. Imagine yourself eating your body weight today. They can fly 10 to 12 miles per hour for 20 hours at a time. You try to do that for 20 minutes. Swarms have been known to include 100 to 200 million locusts and cover up to an area of 400 square miles. Now, just to give you a little perspective, Santa Rosa is 42.7 square miles. So we are talking an, air, a, an area of land 10 times the size of, of Santa Rosa. They darkened the sky. They destroyed everything in their path. Exodus 10 verse 15 says, not a green thing remained. And plagues of locusts still happen today. Uh, just a couple years ago, in, there was a a plague of locusts in Pakistan. And it was so big that it spread into India and it spread uh, west to eastern Africa. 
So Joel speaks of this disaster coming to Israel. And though he later calls the people to repentance, there's something very unique about the book of Joel. Joel never addresses any specific sin that Israel is to repent of. I think of John the Baptist saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent of what, John? Repent of what, Joel? These prophets may be thinking, um, do you want me to say that out loud in front of everybody? Oh, well, maybe not. You know, for the most part, though, the reality is that we know our sin. And when God puts his finger on your heart and says, repent, you know what he's talking about. In Joel chapter 3, God addresses specific sins of the nations. But Joel doesn't get specific on the sin of Israel, except arguably in verse 5, where he speaks to the drunkards, to those who drink in excess. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Wake up. You must be alert. There is danger. Now, the Bible has a love-hate relationship with alcohol. Maybe you have a love-hate relationship with alcohol. The Bible absolutely forbids drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to reckless indiscretion. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Basically saying, when you get drunk, you do a lot of stupid stuff. Reckless indiscretion. And it's interesting, Paul connects drunkenness to being filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk, be filled with the Spirit. So does Joel. Don't get drunk. Then at the end of chapter 2, God's going to pour out his Spirit. So the Bible forbids drunkenness, but it does not forbid drinking. There are actual verses where Israel, the Israelites were commanded to drink, even to drink st- strong drink. On the other hand, Proverbs 31 says, it is not for kings to drink wine or strong drink. If you're in a leadership position, you need to be extra careful about the dangers of alcohol. In the New Testament, Paul acknowledges that alcohol has medicinal purposes. He says, Timothy, take some for your stomach. Drinking in scripture is associated with joy and celebration. In verse 5, Joel here, he's taking a jab at the drunkards, but he's also making it clear that this is not a time of celebration. This is not a time to drink alcohol. This is a time to sober up and be alert. This is a time of judgment. You better quit your drinking and you better repent. Now, is Joel really speaking about a swarm of locusts? It's tough to say because very quickly he switches to speaking about a military conflict. Verse 6, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and it has the fangs of a lioness. That's a little more scary. Because if you know, the male lion just sits on his rear end all day. The female lion does all the work. 
Now notice here, God says, my land. Over and over in Joel, you see these possessive pronouns. You probably didn't think you were going to get a grammar lesson today, but you are. And you're going to get a poetry lesson as well. So first, grammar. So you see these possessive pronouns. Even though God is judging his people, they're still his people. And this is still his land. In scripture and in ancient times, locusts were often used as a metaphor to describe a massive army. Especially a massive army that is swarming over a smaller nation. So this powerful nation is attacking God's people. Is this referring to Assyria attacking the northern kingdom? Or Babylon attacking the southern kingdom? If it's, it's difficult to say. But notice the parallels with the locusts. This army is powerful and beyond number. You can't count the soldiers like you can't count the locusts. The locusts eat everything in their path. Similarly, this army has lion's teeth and the fangs of a lioness. Sharp teeth ready to devour. Now this sounds a little bit like the New Testament description of Satan. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But here, we're talking about God's army. And like the locusts, this army will bring devastation to the land and to God's people. So this is not a time for partying. Verse 7, It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Now my kids are not big fans of figs. How many fig fans do we have here today? Any children's hands up? I don't see any. Yeah. So, but kids, you've got to understand, when the figs were ripe, it was party time. Figs were like Jewish candy. But Joel says, there's no alcohol, there's no figs. These are sad times. Now, kids, just think about that, that last time you went to Chick-fil-A and there was no free ice cream cone at the end of your meal. Sad times. <laughs> Thank you. But So this is not a time to celebrate. Verse 8. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Get sad, cry, weep, lament. So this verse implies that her new husband has died. There was no honeymoon. She is still a virgin. Celebrations in Israel were connected with Jewish holidays and sacrifices that were brought to the temple. But there's not enough grain. There's not enough wine for these sacrifices. Verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. It's tough times when your religious leaders are crying. You can't participate in your religion. This is a time to simply try and survive. You ever feel like that? Like you're just surviving. Just trying to get from one day to the next. 
verse 10, the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Here Joel uses this poetic technique called personification. Everyone say personification. This is where inanimate objects act like people and where they are given human characteristics. The ground mourns. The dirt is crying. The oil languishes. The oil is weak and miserable like the virgin who lost her bridegroom. Now, in Scripture, we're used to hearing about the oil of gladness, which is connected with the blessing of the Lord. But here in Joel 1, there is no gladness at this time in Israel. The oil languishes. There is no blessing. So a foil or a contrast to Joel 1. In Psalm 104, we see people living under the blessing of the Lord. The psalmist worships God saying, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. And wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine. And bread to strengthen man's heart. But Joel, in Joel chapter 1, he says the opposite. No wine, no bread, no oil, no blessing. Joel 1 verse 11. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers. For the wheat and the barley. Because the harvest of the field has perished. That food that you are going to live on, that you are going to bring home for your spouse and your children, it's not coming. Verse 12, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. When darkness comes on the land, what do you do? When violence and perversion on the, are the common standard of the nation. When you are looking for the blessing of the Lord and you don't see it. How should you respond? Joel says, it's time to repent. Verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because the grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. So Joel addresses the spiritual leaders, the priests, and he calls them to do two things. Number one, get uncomfortable. Put on sackcloth. This was a scratchy cloth that was usually made out of goat hair. And number two, he says, weep loudly, wail. He doesn't say, cheer up, sourpuss. You know, sometimes God is not calling us to perk up. He's not calling us to cheer ourselves up or even to cheer others up. He's calling us to mourn over our sin, to weep, to wail, to confess our sin to God and to cry out to him for his help. He's not calling us to a feast, but rather to a famine. Verse 14, 
Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Put on those dark clothes because it's time for a funeral. Call a solemn assembly. It's time to walk slowly. It's time to talk quietly. It's time for, for tears and not a time for laughter. This is not your birthday. It's not a day to work in the fields. It's not a day to get things done at the office or to bring in the harvest. No, no, no. This is the day of the Lord. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Verse 16. It is not the, is not the food cut off? Before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. You know, often the temple of God is where God's people would come together to celebrate, to shout, to feast, to enjoy times of revelry together. But the food and the joy have been cut off. The farmers are getting hit hard. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up and the animals are struggling. Verse 18, how the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed and suffer. When everything is going wrong, there's no food for the animals, there's no money in the bank, there's no food in the cupboard. The kids aren't getting along and your marriage is a wreck. Things are rough at work or you're out of work. And perhaps you look around at the devastation of your life and you realize, hey, God, you did this to me. Because we see in verse 15 that this destruction is from God. This is the day of the Lord. This destruction is from the Almighty. So where do you turn? Friends and family are not looking like a safe harbor. And from all appearances, God himself has turned against you. So where do you go? Despite the fact that this devastation is from God, Joel says, to you, O Lord, I call. There's only one place to go. I think of Peter saying to Jesus, where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of life. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. And fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. In times of sorrow, in pain, suffering, and failure, we turn to the God 
who in his sovereignty brought these events into our lives. We turn to the God who has harmed us because he is the only one who can heal us. We turn to the God who has harmed us because he is the only one who can heal us. There is nowhere else to go. Hosea 6.1 shows us that Israel realized this. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has broken the bone so that he can set it straight. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. We were living in our sin, not thinking about God, just living our lives, drinking our wine, going to our parties until God put a stop to all of that. Now he has our attention. That is the purpose of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is an important theme throughout the Bible, and it is a big theme in the book of Joel. You're going to be hearing about the day of the Lord a lot the next couple weeks. So that's chapter one. Now I want to close with a more detailed overview of Joel. So you get, like I mentioned, there are three sections. I mean, different people break it up differently, but I broke it up into three. Number one, God against his people. So this is the section where God brings his judgment on his people. And we have two examples or illustrations. First, you see a swarm of locusts that devours everything in its path. Then you see a mighty army that devours everything in its path. And we find out in chapter 2, verse 11, that this is the army of the Lord. This is not just bad luck or unfortunate circumstances. No, this is God. God in his sovereignty who is bringing about these devastations that destroy everything in their path. You know, when I mow the field, KK took this picture for us. Thank you, KK. When I mow the field, I love to look back and see the path that I have made. Ahead of me is high grass, but behind me is grass that has been cut down to three beautiful inches. This is what the locusts and the army of the Lord does to the land. They destroy everything in their path. Chapter 2, verse 3, the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. So this is quite a judgment. Nothing escapes. In chapter 1, you see, the plants are destroyed. There's no wine. The trees are ruined. The fields are destroyed. So there's no food, or there's nowhere for the animals to go. There's no seed to plant crops. The water is dried up. In chapter 2, you see darkness and gloom. And people are in anguish. And you ask this question, why would God bring such devastation on his people? Is God's intention only for harm? No. God is trying to get their attention. 
to call them to repentance. In chapter 1, he says, Lament, fast, cry out to God, call a solemn assembly. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, Joel tells them what to do. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Then he gives them some hope. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Now, I got to stop at that little part there. Not, he's not going to leave the devastating path behind him, but rather it says, leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering. There's grain and there's wine for you to bring to the house of God and to celebrate once again, a grain and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Our God is a jealous God. He wants his people all to himself. He won't share. He doesn't want to share you with other gods. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, Joel gives us a picture of what happens when God's people repent and come back to him. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. So the first half of the book is God against his people and calling them to repent in order that he might bring the blessing. Joel, Joel 2.25 I think for many people, this is one of their most favorite promises in the entire Bible. God says, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. All of those wasted years, all of those years languishing under the judgment of God, wasting your energy, your time, your potential, bringing destruction to the lives of the people around you. God says, I will restore those years. He will pay back blessing for those years. The second section, God says he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. These are the words quoted by the apostle Peter at Pentecost. That's for you kids. Apostle Peter, Pentecost. My kids love alliteration. Peter says that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. I've heard preachers say, this is that. Joel is one of the 12 minor prophets, but you know what? Jews don't call them the minor prophets. They call them the book of the 12 because they're still important. They're not minor in their importance. So the book of the 12. And it's interesting, in the Hebrew Bible, the Jews give these five verses their own chapter. So the Jewish version of the book of Joel actually has four chapters, not three, because this section, these five verses are not just tacked on to the end of chapter two. 
the Jews recognized that there was something very unique and different about this text. So they gave it its own chapter. In the Hebrew Bible, chapter 1 has 20 verses, chapter 2 has 27 verses, chapter 4 at the end has 21 verses, but chapter 3 stands out because it only has five verses. The verse breakdowns are basically the same except for the fact that the Jews break up our chapter 2 into two chapters. And how appropriate, because it is this section, chapter 3, in the Hebrew Bible, that is the hinge upon which the course of this book turns. It is the hinge upon which the course of history turns. As we think of Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So God is against his people. He calls them to repentance. Then he pours out his spirit. And that leads to the last section Number three, God judges the nations and blesses his people. In chapter three, the nations come together at the valley of Jehoshaphat. And many associate this with the final judgment mentioned in Revelation chapter 16. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. This place is also called the valley of decision. But it is not the people but rather God who is making the decision. The decision is the verdict. The judgment of God, the judgment that God will be bringing upon the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then God gives the verdict. So he gives the verdict of his judgment to the nations and the verdict of his blessing to his people. Those who have not acknowledged that the Lord is God Those who have not set their affections on Jesus Christ, they will be judged in the valley of decision. And what about God's people? What happens to them in the valley of decision? God's people who once had God fighting against them, plaguing them and devastating them in order to get their attention and to capture their affections, these who have repented and turned to the Lord, these who have acknowledged that the Lord is their God, their only God, these who have set their affections on him alone, the verdict in the valley of decision will be blessing and prosperity, joy and gladness. Sweet fellowship with the God they love. Now, you still may be a little iffy regarding this idea of God fighting against his people. But you need to know that if you are in Christ, ultimately, even this is for your good. That's where we walk by faith. And maybe you're thinking about the challenge you're facing right now, and you need to believe Even this is for your good. John Piper says, recognize God's good intention in opposing his people. If our hearts wander from this God, he will fight against us to bring us to repentance. I have seen it in my own life. If I begin to become proud and self-confident and prayer starts to feel unnecessary, God clogs my way. He brings me down. Things will go sour at home. 
Tensions arise at work. Sleep is not sweet. Depression builds. Everywhere I turn, there is no joy. He boxes me in and clogs my way. He fights against me in my pride. For he is a jealous God, trust, 100%. When he says in chapter 2, verse 12, return to me with all your heart, it's clear, isn't it, what he is fighting for? All our heart. Not a piece on Sunday, a piece at mealtime, and a piece at bedtime. If you are his, he will fight you until you give him all your heart. Israel was constantly going after other gods and serving God half-heartedly. Graduates today, serve the Lord your God with all your heart. Wherever you may go and whatever new temptations you may face, serve the Lord with all your heart. The prophet Hosea compares Israel to a wayward wife. In Hosea, we see that God as a husband is fighting against his bride's efforts to go after other men. In Hosea 2 verses 6 through 7 he fights against her because he wants her all to himself. He says, therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Praise the Lord. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better with me then than now. That's all God wanted. He wanted his bride to come back home, to set her affections on him. Ultimately, God wants it better for you than it is. He knows that when you pursue your other lovers and your other gods, it will only lead to your misery. So he had to get your attention. He had to get Israel's attention. That is the purpose of the day of the Lord. May you and I have our own personal day of the Lord. May our focus move to him. God is getting our attention so we will return to him. That is the purpose of the locusts, the army, the pouring out of the spirit and the blessing. It is all aimed at captivating your affections and setting them upon Jesus Christ who died for your sin. Christ, who rose from the dead. Christ, who intercedes for you to the Father. This is God screaming to his people, remember me. He's saying, why do I do this? Why do I do everything I do? So that you shall know that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. Why don't you stand and let's pray.
Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us all our own personal day of the Lord. I pray that you would wake us up from our revelry and that you would enable us to pass this message on to our children and our grandchildren. I pray that you cause us to grieve deeply over our sin. Give us that great gift of godly sorrow and true repentance. Like the prodigal, cause us to leave the pigsty of our sin and come back home to our Father who is waiting on the porch, waiting to set off running so that he can have us in his arms. Thank you, God, for fighting for us so that we would set our affections on you. 